Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. How are you today, Mr. Babington? Have things improved since our session last week? Things are banging, Dr. K. I got the fresh-to-death kicks on, I got some jeans on, and I got the shirt, but I ain't wearing this shirt when I go to the club. This is the shirt before the shirt. Mr. Babington, we've discussed this before. You are... 81 years old, and by talking in this manner, you're denying the reality of who you are, and it, it, it doesn't even sound like you. So, as your therapist... Say what? <laughs> you know, back in the day, they had the prophecy that one day there would be a pimp of all pimps, and his name would be Morton Babington. Mr. Babington, I strongly suspect you've been watching Jersey Shore reruns again. You are not the situation. The, the situation is not an adequate role model for you. Tell that to Ariana Grande. She's the Staten Island Ferry, know what I mean? <laughs> Everybody gets a ride, <laughs> and it's free. <laughs> Ariana Grande is 21, and as far as I know, she's a very nice young lady, except for the donut-licking episode. The what? Tell me about that. I am not going to tell you about that, Mr. Babington. You're a retired biology teacher with three medical patents to your name. Here in your golden years, you should seek a sense of accomplishment in some new pursuit, like painting. Not acting like a 26-year-old New Jersey oversexed musclehead with an 800-word vocabulary. Uh, I guess you're right, Dr. K. Maybe it is time to cast adolescence aside. It was time to do that 60 years ago, sir. <sighs> but before I do... Gym, tan, laundry, and make a run at that Bristol Palin. <laughs> Ba-boom! <laughs> Get out of my office. Out, right now. What is wrong with people? It's like a, a whole generation decided it would never accept the aging process. Let's see. Fifteen minutes before my next patient. Plenty of time to send my daily email to Justin Bieber. Dear Justin, it's me, your little love hamster. Don't the rest of you have something to do while I do this? And now Fifth Harmony got a restraining order against him, Colin McEnroe. That would be a joke that you would only get if you knew who Fifth Harmony was, which I really didn't until I wrote that intro today. So, But in fact, uh, that notion, that notion that uh, we are trapped uh, generationally in this quest to be something that we're not and this refusal uh, to, uh, to accept who we are and what the limits of our biology are, it runs through uh, the writing of our guest today, uh, Mark Greif. I'm, first off, I should say I'm down in New Haven, our lovely New Haven studios on Audubon Street. We don't get here, down here anywhere near often enough, uh, and, uh, but I'm meeting Mark here. He's the co-founder and editor of N Plus One uh, and the author of The Age of the Crisis of Man, Thought and Fiction in America, and most recently, Against Everything, Essays. I should also I have a separate piece of paper to point this out. Um, he also teaches at the New School and is a fellow uh, at the Center for Advanced Studies, Study and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Um, so th this is a book of essays against everything, uh, and it's not really against everything, but it's a great title for a book of essays. First of all, Mark, welcome, welcome to New Haven. Welcome to our studios. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. Um, these essays range around a lot among 
political and philosophical questions, but also contain a lot about popular culture, about music, about Radiohead, punk, rap, uh, reality television, which we're about to talk about in a second. Uh, and probably my favorite essay is against, actually, it's not against experience, but it is the problem of experience. Uh, we'll talk about that, too. Uh, I, 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 You challenged me as I read that. I thought, could experience actually be like a bad thing to be focusing on? Well, anyway, you make a very good case about that. We'll come to that in a second. But um, first of all, you know, you said, uh, I think you see in the prologue to this book that you founded N Plus One uh, as a place to have a kind of writing that you didn't think was being published. You and your colleagues didn't think was being published. What was that kind of writing? And is it exemplified by these essays? I do think these these essays uh, exemplify whatever I hoped N Plus One would be. And, and these were my best efforts to kind of make that uh, new writing in actuality. I mean, we were all in our 20s when we started uh, the magazine. It came out of complaint, you know, people sitting around in a room saying, how come everybody who's um, described in the New Republic has been dead for 100 years? You know, mm-hmm. you can always read another essay about the greatness of Flaubert, who I think was great, mm-hmm. uh, or the greatness of Tolstoy. Uh, but is anybody great now? That was one question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to do the kind of writing that you're allowed to do in your early 20s if you want to be a, a journalist and a thinker and a fiction writer and all the rest of it is largely to write reviews of other people in which you pretend that your own best thoughts, you know, if you dare utter them, came from hearing, well, back then, the new Spice Girls album or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a new novel that's come out. So the idea was just to go at matters like experience or like uh, in this book, exercise, food, sex, et cetera, directly with no literature review from an academic world and no uh, pretense that you were pulling this out of, you know, uh, something that had been assigned to you. That was the N plus one idea. Right. And despite everything you just said, uh, Flaubert is very present uh, in your book, and so is Britney Spears. So um, Yeah, I do love Flaubert. Britney, I like Britney. <laughs> so... Um, I want to talk about. I want to just say, first of all, this this group of essays will never be able to cover uh, everything that's in here, and there's a, a lot of food for thought here. But you do have an entire chapter, or entire essay on reality television. We are in the midst uh, of um, an election season in which one of the two nominees is a product of reality television yes. and who made his mark in reality television. Um, I've already uh, had my uh, expounded my theory about reality tel- television and how it relates to the political scene. Um, I want to hear, like, you watched a lot of different kinds of reality television and had a lot of very canny things to say about it. What what, what do you think the connection is between what's happening right now and what happened uh, on The Apprentice? Oh, well, I want to know your theory, too, since, uh, you know, in short form. They're so bored by my theory. But I'll, I'll, do, <laughs> I'll do the short version of it for you in a second. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems to me it makes perfect sense in a way that, that uh, Trump should – jump, you know, not very far from um, the apprentice and the celebrity apprentice into, you know, the the media circus of uh, of this presidential race and the celebrity presidential race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about reality television is that I take it to be actually one of the better representations we have uh, or kind of ways of thinking through what America is like right now. Um you know, the various reality television shows, they show you entirely different parts of the American reality. Ice Road Truckers gives you one kind of picture of, you know, the last redoubts of people doing productive work in America, which I think is a real worry now of reality TV. Are we just a country that has junk in the attic to sell to one another, you know, in the way that Antiques Roadshow has taken over PBS? Or do we still do any work? Um, but then there are these other fantasies uh, on reality television of how democracy might work not in a really messy and complex way, but stripped down to, 
you know, uh, people voting each other off the island as if that's what voting was, or in the case of Trump, you know, a kind of strong man who will step in as a whole different set of uh, identity groups, you know, represented by individuals compete, and he will kind of say, you deserve something, you don't deserve anything. You're fired and, and you will get the job. So in a way, Trump was already, I think, on The Apprentice being offered up in fantasies of a simplification of America, let's say, and that's what he's carried over into his campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's very similar to what, what my theory is, too, just in the sense that, you know, pornography shows you a kind of sex that you're unlikely to have. It's unlikely that when you're delivering a pizza uh, that the person who's getting the pizza is going to want to have sex with you right away. <laughs> so um, and and I think that reality television shows you a, a fantasy of being able to get rid of people. The reality is in your life, you're not getting rid of people. You know, you're not going to the person you don't like at work is not going to get fired. You know, or the person who's not pulling his weight is not going to get fired. And you're going to be having Thanksgiving dinner with the same, you know, 20 or 30 people for the rest of your life. Uh, people don't go away. But on reality television, they go away. So many of these shows are elimination shows. And they're selling, I think, that fantasy that Trump's saying, too. The, the people that you don't like can be gotten rid of. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I of course, now want to uh, defend reality television, but only on the basis of its diversity of forms. That wasn't an attack on reality No, no, no. But I, I, I mean, I, I, I personally, it was a, a problem. I really disliked the big network reality shows because I felt like they were streamlined and smoothed down. And just as you said, they very often were about sort of disappearing people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really liked and still like uh, the, <laughs> the extremely cheap and junky reality shows that you would find on all the other cable channels. And um, largely because I felt like their very sleaziness or their unrespectability kind of allowed you to see into parts of people's lives as people imagined their lives, you know, suitable to television that you would never see otherwise. And that even you wouldn't quite see in the virtuous, vitamin-filled, uh, noble documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I wish I had left all this behind. As you say, I, for that essay, The Reality of Reality Television, I go through all the different types of, uh, of shows I can diagnose. The, the cops show of the immediate event, the Robinson Crusoe show of imagining society starting over, dating shows, which were what really obsessed me and I watched constantly. But even last night, I, I, um, I meant to go to sleep so that I would be properly rested for this interview. But instead, I was up for <laughs> you know an extra four or five hours watching a show I'd never seen before called uh, 90 Day Fiance, uh, a show premised on um, discovering people in America who had, had gone on vacation mm -hmm. um, in Jamaica or Thailand and so forth and met a, a spouse and brought them home for the necessary 90 days before they could get married uh, and then the person would get a green card and so forth. Uh, but the deep question of the show is meant to be, are the, you know, the visitors from abroad really in love with these often – uh, let's say, un, unconventionally attractive or, or not conventionally attractive people from often kind of depopulated towns in Ohio or in the center of the country, or are they just there for the American dream? The thing that's actually fascinating watching the show is thinking, what are all these people imagining about America and life in America in this whole kind of transactional process? Because um, the people from abroad seem to have one vision of what it would be like to live in a country with a strong dollar where they can send money home and so forth. But the people who are marrying seem to have another vision of what it means to take, as it were, like the experience of being on a beach in Jamaica and bring it back to 
you know, Piscataway or whatever town they're in. Uh, so I still, I still believe reality television offers us a tunnel to truths that we may or may not want to see. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And uh, I, I will say, as you're talking about this, you've got a separate uh, essay in the book about uh, the police. Uh, but um, I remember that my son, my son, uh, over the course of his life, he's now 27, but he's watched a lot more reality television than I have. But I would be passing through the living room. And there was one reality TV show. I have no idea what it was called. But basically, all it was was footage from fixed cameras, like on high, you're nodding, like, you know what I'm talking oh, about, show, like yeah. on highways or places like that, you know, and then like once every 20,000 minutes, something really interesting happens, and they just turn that into the, and so He's, I'm walking through the living room and he's watching this thing. And it's one of these things where there's, I don't know, there's some kind of traffic thing. But then the cops uh, wind up, I don't know, they're searching the car. They're doing all kinds of stuff that are basically, you know, violations of about two or three different amendments. And I'm watching this. And my son at, the, at that time was going through a period where he referred to the police as the boys. And so I, I, I was like pointing at the TV going, they can't do that. They can't do it. Okay, what they're doing right now, they can't do that. And and he, without looking away from the TV, went, the boys can do whatever they want. The boys the boys will do that. They just do whatever they want to do. <laughs> and this is sort of before the conversation that we're having in America right now. But that's to your point, right, that there's sort of a lot of information there. Yeah, there are things you could see that, yeah, exactly, that they don't belong to our conception of what the law is or what America is. But uh, But you can actually kind of witness them on tape. And I think, you know, I don't know whether you would go this far, but certainly over the last 18 months, we've been having this conversation about sort of missing parts of America, parts of America that hadn't been heard from and then expressed their rage over disenfranchisement and and marginalization through both the Sanders candidacy and the Trump candidacy. It's kind of maybe not fair to say we hadn't heard. I mean, we saw Honey Boo Boo, right? I mean, there's a lot of shows that are about people who – in fact, are exactly, until they get the deal for the show, right on that margin. It's true. Although, uh, it's funny, the way those shows do get talked about when people talk about uh, yeah, Honey Boo Boo and the Kardashians and so forth is usually, I think, uh, with a tone of slight contempt or holding of one's nose in the rest of the legitimate media, but also a mistake, I think, about why those of us who watch them watch them. The idea is either it's voyeurism, and we too just are disgusted and contemptuous of the Jersey Shore people, or we like watching a car accident, or else it's um, kind of immediate sympathy and imitation. You know, I watch the Kardashians because I dream of being the Kardashians. And I think what's not understood about all those shows, yeah, and what we should have been seeing all these years, is that you do watch and think, and you do watch and and judge, um, but not in a, a kind of you know, unthinking way. I mean, it's been a funny uh, couple of years, let's say, especially with Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street before that, and now the presidential election, because when I read the newspaper, I'm told that America is unraveling and so forth. And I think, uh, au contraire, New York Times, actually, there's a way in which this is as honest a moment as we've had in 15 years, and I, I like it feel good about it. It only unravels or is unraveling if you imagine a kind of single stranded story mm-hmm. uh, represented on the front page of the paper. I sort of come around to that point of view. I mean, totally have to take a break in just a second. But uh, I've come around to that point of view, too, that we've catastrophized this narrative because we're only looking at the part of it that's the most catastrophic. You know, that in fact, as you're suggesting, it's all knit together with, I don't know, I was listening to, I think it was Jacob Weisberg talking about this about right after 
we had the debate where Trump said the whole thing about he wouldn't necessarily uh, accept the results of the uh, of the election and I, I will keep you in suspense and all this stuff, which also sounds very much like, you know, a cliffhanger at the end of a reality show. But Weisberg said, so what if he doesn't accept it? You know, I mean, the country's, you know, there's like a lot of people here and there's a lot of mechanisms and there's a lot. So what if he doesn't accept it? Who cares? And, and the, I think it, the, the, we do – when there's something like that at one of the debates, we kind of start to supply the reality show music. You know, I may not accept the results of, of the election. I'll keep you in suspense. Da, 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 da. You know, we sort of supply that musical sound because it's probably more enjoyable to watch things unravel than to imagine that they're not going to change that much. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, too, was to have the opportunity in much longer, you know, essays uh, to face these things that clearly matter, they appear in the news, everyone talks about them, and everyone else says, um, I know what this means. They co- have to constitutionally. And just to say, um, I have no idea what this means, right? I, I mean, something has happened which is stupefying. I wish on CNN they could stop and say, I have no idea what this means. I will need 10 to 24 hours to even begin to formulate a thought. They never do. And and so, you know, in, a, in against everything, the idea was... Um, well, stop. You know, I'll stop and and just see however long it takes. Can I think further about this? And each time I stop or get stopped in a in a train of thought, put it away for a few months, come back to it, and and try to push myself to think some more. That could be like a whole new cable channel, though. It's not going to happen on CNN, but there could be like the thinking channel where like you know like people actually okay I have to think about this. Come back in about two months, uh, but don't go away for two months now. Come back in about ninety seconds because I'm going to be back with more of Mark Greif. Believe it or not, I'm not quite done with reality television. Although there's so many other things in this book I want to talk about. I hate to exercise. I know my clothes are getting tight, but it's not going to make any difference anyway. I've got those. I hate to exercise, but I'm up already and I can't get back to sleep. So I'm having a little. All right. Uh, we're here in the uh, New Haven studios of WNPR visiting with Mark Greif, a co founder and editor of N Plus One. Uh, his newest book, a collection of uh, essays, is called Against Everything. Uh, essays. Uh, and we were talking a little bit about reality te- television in the previous segment. I'm not all the way done yet. See, I think that you're really exploring this really interesting question. At one point, I think in the essay, you say something like, whom the gods love, they give a reality TV show. I, my motto is always, whom the gods would destroy, they first make famous. Um, that, and that there's kind of a sense that I have, although I think you're kind of, you're persuading me in, in the other direction, um, that one of the things that we've done through YouTube, another thing that you write about in reality television, is to create a class of celebrities who are demonstrably no better than we are and whom in whom we never have to hold in awe. You know, I mean, if you think about sort of what culture was like, say, circa 1950, you know, the notion – you would take somebody like Lana Turner who might not have been that extraordinary a person and create awe around this person so that you really – couldn't even dream of breathing the same, you know, molecules of, of the atmosphere as Lana Turner. Um, and it seems as though we've kind of done the opposite thing, was to create a class of celebrities who are much closer to us in terms of talent, status, self-control, you name it. Um, my thought is that's so that we can hate them and destroy them. <laughs> but I think you have a more benign explanation for this. Well, I guess um – I find that my desires for uh, for TV, for reality TV, for YouTube, they may be cut in, in two ways because um, 
I actually would like to see representation without celebrity, right? I just mm. want to see people broadcast. Um, you know, and in the book, I, I say, uh, although it's non-autobiographical in the book, I say, we, you know, we always have dreamed, uh, those of us who love television, and I do, of a time when everyone's lives would simply be broadcast in their ordinariness. And you could go onto cable and just see things that are satisfying endlessly, the puppy channel, the sunset channel, the children, babies channel, and indeed, actually, as we were talking last segment, I have a name for it now, uh, the stupefaction channel, right, on which you would just have uh, professional pundits come on and, <laughs> and, you know, be shown some news story, and they would say, I have no opinion. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, that would actually be incredibly gratifying and I think good for democracy. Uh, on the other hand, I do think reality TV, YouTube too, they produce this other strange effect of seeing that people like you are not like you in that they have some peculiar greatness uh, or grandeur. Often it turns out to be charisma in relation to the camera. Mm. I mean, I think of uh, Snooki, was that her name, Snooki. on the Jersey Shore? Yeah. A, a tiny person. And I think um, a negligible person, if you just passed around the street, there was nothing overtly remarkable about her in the way that Hollywood stars are you know, gorgeous and remarkable mm. and so forth. And yet she just had this kind of manic way of, of um, communicating and commanding the camera. So uh, I don't know. You know, I, biographically, as a kid, I used to work in um, community access cable television <laughs> in my town because I believed in it. I really thought that, you know, a, a real democracy would be one in which we would just all see each other doing the most banal things. And we would tape uh, town concerts and, you know, school board meetings and stuff like that. And I, in a way, I still hold that out as the ideal. And what's so frustrating about some of the forms, I write about this in the book, YouTube and so forth, is that each time it seems like we're getting towards something like a democratic festival, you know, singing contest to just see people who are brilliant singers and dancing contests and sewing contests and harvesting contests. Instead, what we get are just more advertisements for um, car insurance and more professional music videos and so forth. So uh, in the book, I think there is a kind of push-pull between the fantasy of what I think of as a genuinely democratic popular culture, mm. and then the fact that it's always possessed by the they, you know, the people who, who own the thing and, and want to sell us toothpaste. I think that's nowhere more evident than um, in America's Got Talent. There's somebody else in my house who really likes to watch America's Got Talent. And whenever I watch it, I think some of these performers are really vibrant and talented, and a lot of them are sort of street performers. A lot of them are literally people who've been performing in the streets. Um, and, and they're really good. And But the gatekeepers to greatness are Heidi Klum and Mel B and Piers Morgan at one point and Howie Mandel and Simon Cowell. I will I, I would segregate Howard Stern a little bit. Most of these people are rather mediocre people who have no particular talent whatsoever. And that's that I think sort of nails down your point a little bit too that – so here's this incredibly democratic thing where in fact if you've been performing you know, in, in some you know, farmer's market in Seattle for the last five years and you're really good at whatever it is you do, the, the people that you have to toady to <laughs> – in order to get to Vegas are these people who aren't particularly good at anything. Yeah. Or, or you know, or is the kind of tragedy of those shows, the thing that they're good at is taking people with talent and actually steering them towards a kind of fixed commercial norm, which is often just sort of gross. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the paradox of the shows is that they ape real singing contests, right? Yeah. And yet they turn into kind of self-stylization contests where you kind of cut off the interesting things about you in order to be uh, – a, a bland pop star. So uh, we have to go to a break for uh, fundraising in just a, a couple of minutes here, Mark. But um, 
So one of the questions that kept springing into my mind as I read this book is that you're obviously uh, Thoreau is your guy or one of your guys. Uh, do you ever think about what Thoreau would be doing today? I mean, in some ways, Walden is a reality TV show, right? Here I am, you know, I've got my beans, you know, I've got my pond, I've got, you know, here I am, I'm like doing this thing, and I'm kind of, kind of letting you watch by writing this book, too. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, like, what, what place would Thoreau find? In, would he give TED Talks? I hope he wouldn't give a TED Talk. That's a tough one. I mean, I, truthfully, the answer in a way is I think you'd be doing exactly the same thing. That mm-hmm. is to say, um, I think he would be just going somewhere. It might not be uh, the edge of a pond, but it might well be, you know, it might be in town, as it were, and sitting there and saying, so um, I see that you're all running around getting those enormous houses and cars and jobs and so forth, but uh, your reasons for it aren't very good. Here I am doing the same thing on a kind of small and ludicrous scale. Maybe I can figure out my reasons for it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to put too much stock in Thoreau in that um, his is a hard uh, example to follow if what you imagine it is is going off into the woods and doing everything yourself and digging beans. On the other hand, if you think of him as someone who was just prepared to be a crank, but a crank who actually stayed in his own world, you know, who went home on weekends to do his laundry and see his parents, who who laughed after two years, who was babysitter for Ralph Waldo Emerson's kids and like a handyman around the house— that Thoreau, I can just love endlessly because he was prepared all the time to kind of face his his fellow townsmen and women in Concord, people he knew well, and say to them, uh, why are you doing that? Do you really need to be doing that that way? Mm-hmm. Should I do it? I don't think so. Uh, that kind of crankishness is what I, what I loved about Thoreau. And, you know, the thing I say in the book, too, is that um, I suppose he's my guy, as you say, but... I grew up just outside of Boston and Newton, and in those western suburbs, you know, Walden Pond is the nicest place to swim, and it's like the one pretty spot. Uh, my mother would take me when I was little, and we had no idea what Thoreau really said. My mother had not read Walden. I certainly had not read it. Uh, but the fact that there had been this guy whom everyone called a philosopher and, and whose business was just to really ask, were the things that everybody liked and said were great? Were they so great? And the things that were universally vilified and everyone knew were terrible, were they really so terrible and villainous? The fact that such a person could exist just seemed to me a, a, a kind of vision of um, some way out of what in the suburbs otherwise seemed like a lot of agreement. I think we could make this work as a reality show, particularly like, you know, <laughs> the stuff about like going home to do his laundry and stuff. Um, and, uh, and certainly the episode where he goes to jail. I mean, that's ratings gold. Um, you know, the the sick reality, I don't think I've ever confessed this in a public forum. Uh, when N plus one got going, um, there was a lot of uh, misrecognition, let's say, of what a small magazine was. You know, a small magazine is a place where you um, you write things and you try to print them, hoping someone will read them. And, and the glory of writing is you don't have to have anybody see you, right? You can just say what you really mean. And yeah, after a couple of years, uh, reality television producers began turning up. And uh, especially our art magazine, they were tapped. To they do- wanted to do a reality show? Yeah, they wanted them to right. do a show. We, Oops. we have to maybe continue this conversation <laughs> because, in fact, we are going to be getting and spending and laying waste okay. our powers. Uh, but I hope that you, it's a different thinker, I hope that you will support this show. If you like listening to a conversation like the one Mark and I are having, do the right thing. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by the old guy from the Six Flags commercials. Check out all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or go to wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about bulldozers. 
And now, back to Colin. The old guy from the Six Flags commercials? That guy has a name, okay? I don't happen to know what it is, but, I mean, he, he probably has one. Right? Um, we're uh, here down in our beautiful New Haven studios, and actually our whole a group of show producers are here together. Jonathan McNichol and uh, Betsy Kaplan and Josh and Alea, we're all here. We're all going to go out for coffee afterwards. We're really excited about that. Uh, and again, we're in New Haven. We're just, <laughs> just like things we could go do and stuff. It's just so nice because uh, the building that we're in in Hartford, although we like it a lot, it's really not near much of anything except the emergency room. Um, all right. So um, – we're talking to Mark Greif. I, I, this, these essays uh, in his collection, Against Everything, are, they're so great for me. I don't know if they're going to be great for you or not, but they're great for me because they're like all kinds of things that I think about all the time. So if you're wondering if anybody is writing about the things that you think about, it may be Mark Greif. Uh, and he's here with us in the studio. Um, so in some ways, this is the most uh, abstract uh, of the essays. A lot of the essays are about things like Radiohead and punk and, as we say, reality television and YouTube and uh, uh, exercise at health clubs and stuff like that. There's uh, lots of things that you can very easily wrap your fingers around. Uh, but the one that intrigued me the most was, in fact, a, a, an essay about the, the notion of experience. And, uh, and I will attempt to articulate the beginning of it, and then you can sort of correct me. But that, in some ways, one of the things that we tell ourselves, and I'm totally guilty of this, is that one of the ways that we could live a meaningful life was simply to pile up, to accumulate experiences. If we have a lot of experiences, whatever we particularly mark down, too, as a particularly vibrant, enriching kind of experience, like, you know, if we travel a lot, you know, or, I mean, you talk about uh, as when we're young, maybe sexual experiences or drug experiences, but, but pick your poison, whatever it is, that all we really have to do, or not all we have to do, but one of the ways to have a meaningful life is just to do that, just be having lots of experiences. And I think one of the reasons we tell ourselves that story is that we imagine the alternative to be a kind of lassitude, you know, and a kind of, well, probably watching way too much, spending four or five hours watching uh, a reality television show at night about people who may or may not be trying to get their green cards uh, through marriage, that that's, that's the counter, only counter narrative we know. So we better go have experiences, right? Yeah, I mean that's you've you've summarized the, <laughs> you've summarized the beginning of the essay beautifully. I mean it it um it was motivated by the kind of question that you ask yourself constantly and just as you say you ask yourself does anyone else ask himself or herself this? I would ask myself what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? Um and when I tried seriously to answer in in the privacy of the mind, I would think well you know, at least I took those trips. I remember that that trip to Paris. That was incredible. I saw Paris. I experienced it. And I, well, I dated people, uh, even when it was unpleasant, even when I ended up not liking them. I, I, I you know, I got to know some people. And one way or another, it, it seemed, as I as I tried to justify my life to myself, that I was kind of putting up on a shelf these little snow globes of experiences. You know, and sometimes I would take them down and dust them and look at them and put them back. It's not clear why that should be the justification for a life right now. And yet, as I listened to friends and I asked them what they thought was meaningful in life, what the meaning of life was, that's the kind of subtitle of that mm. concept of experience essay, I heard it in their answers too. And I began to ask myself, why would we focus on experience? Why would we think of it as something collectible, something to be produced even when you don't like the experiences you're producing, a kind of end in itself? And then if it's really true that that we do think a little bit that way about the justification of our lives now, 
first of all, how long has that been going on? And mm-hmm. in the essay, I, I wind up kind of tracing it back to um, the 1850s and to these figures who first start to imagine in the role of, you know, the aesthetic and art, can I get the experiences in life that I get from a painting or from a, a, a photogravure or whatever they, <laughs> whatever they had at the moment? And then in this other line of perfectionism, can I just keep changing my life to make it incrementally different as the world shows me new possibilities? That was part of it, the tracing. And then the other part of the essay is, of course, asking what does this do to us or or what are the other kinds of justifications for life and and what a good life would be that we might we might have instead um and we'll get to those i mean they are in your essay perfectionism and aestheticism um one of the thoughts that i had uh reading that essay too i had this sort of profound moment uh watching the uh espn documentary oj made in america uh and uh, talk about wasting your time. He said it wasn't. It was really great. It had this, these tremendous insights about what it means even to try to live a meaningful life in America. And there's this incredible sort of Gatsby-like moment where OJ is standing outside his Brentwood house and he's been exonerated or he's been, you know, he's been found not guilty anyway. And he realizes that he's not popular in Brentwood anymore. People are turning their back on him. And he has this, this sort of cri de cour where he says, you know, I, I moved here before a lot of these people did. Um, and they're shunning me now. And but what you really see in this whole documentary is this guy who, in fact, hasn't asked any questions about the meaning of life. He has assumed that there's a template, and the template involves becoming rich and famous, that this kind of star-making, wealth-enriching machinery, you know, all you have to do is kind of position yourself next to it, and, and that'll do it. And, and you watch the whole documentary unfold over across, across five episodes, and that's what's going on in the back of your head is like he's got nothing else to live for. And that's sort of the question that you're asking really too. I mean we can substitute experience for maybe some of the even more carnal and vanal ideas that OJ might have had. But it still gets to a question, do you have any framework to put around it? So the two that you have, one of them is uh, embodied by Flaubert, aestheticism. The other one is perfectionism embodied by Thoreau. Um, so aestheticism is simply, well, here, you, you're, it's your idea. <laughs> You oh sure. Well, yeah. uh, they're pretty straightforward, and yeah. I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, you know, exalt the ism too much. Mm. But um, yeah, the the aestheticist line is one that says I should make my life uh, into a work of art, or, mm. or stylize my life the way that you would shape a work of art. And on the um, the other side, I should be able to get from everyday life, the people I know, the things I do, things I see on the street, the kinds of tempestuous and powerful feelings that I would get from a work of art, a movie, a song, etc. Perfectionism, a little different. It's a line that says all these things of the world, uh, they should be teaching me lessons constantly. They should be inspiring me to be different or to change myself. They rebuke me. And so it's a vision not of... um, just becoming perfect, you know, the perfectionist who has all of uh, his or her paper clips in an order and has good handwriting, but of a, a constantly changing self so that if nothing else, you can look back on your life and say, well, I lived many lives and I've changed constantly, I've transformed. Um, I mean, I don't think the essay comes down in favor or against those two, but they're, let's say, two coherent lines, I think, that um, underlie a lot of the ways many of us do live that never get articulated. They're not uh, the official answers. And and that was kind of the thing that interested me in that essay and throughout the book. I hope it doesn't sound too abstract, but there are official ways 
to justify our lives and, and mm-hmm. to explain how we're meant to live. I think one of them, curiously, is fame, this mm-hmm. vision that fame is enough or nearness to fame is enough. Another and the much more respectable one puts together family and happiness, but what is that, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and you say, well, I live for my family, and of course I would like to be happy, and so forth and so on. And yet it's a real challenge to dig down and try to listen carefully to how people describe their lives and try to say, are there systems, are there comprehensive justifications that aren't named and aren't official? And that's what I was what I was going for throughout the book. Um, you're... Um in your, the aestheticism part, one of the people that I thought about, one of the people who's fascinated me, uh, although kind of in a different way that I think he fascinates a lot of the world, is Philippe Petit, the guy who did the mm. walk on the wire. I mean, there's this moment in the documentary about a man on wire where he says almost exactly the same thing that you just said, uh, that, that, that basically, to me, the fact that he walked on a wire across the World Trade Center, across the two towers of the World Trade Center, is breathtaking and fascinating. But it's not actually the real story that I find interesting. What's interesting is how he's lived the rest of his life. And I think he has lived the rest of his life the way that you describe, insisting that every day essentially be a separate work of art from the previous day, which takes a tremendous amount of rigor. Um, but he, he actually does say that at one point in the documentary. That's, that's the whole idea. It's not this other thing. The whole idea is living your life that way. But that's an incredibly difficult – I mean, each of those ideas that you propose, they're big lifts, as people say these days. Yeah. And and one of the enigmas at the end of that essay, it it doesn't have an answer that I find, and I still think about it constantly. I don't have an answer, is whether you actually have to make art to live in this way, Mm -hmm. Um, whether you actually have to ceaselessly change your life in ways that are visible to other people, where you can say, well, I I used to be a professional parachutist, but now I'm a – I don't know, typist in the typing pool, and next I'll be a, an accountant or something. And uh, Or, you know, I mean, the real problem, especially for lots of people, is um, they feel that their life, even if being lived in some way artistically, has no meaning if they don't have a book that they've written or a painting that they've made and so forth. I remember um, I lived in a small town for a while, and, and I work, you know, I write in public in cafes and things. And uh, it was shocking to me. This was a few years ago. But I would talk to lots of other people who were writing uh, in the cafe, and we would talk about writing. And I would say, oh, well, that sounds great. I think your book will be great. And they would say, yeah, I think the book will be great. But the, the really important thing is that I think Oprah could read this book and bring me on her show. And, in fact, they had a kind of imagination, not just of writing the book, but of having Oprah ask them about the book. And and that would be the kind of pinnacle moment of registration, let's say, for a life that, when I listened to it, just seemed really admirable as it was. I'm not going to run down Oprah too much here because I have a big project for her at the end of this election cycle. You know how we've been through this period where uh, Donald Trump will say something and then like three minutes later he'll say he didn't say it and he's never said it. And there's been this just sort of constant denial of reality all the time. And Ira Glass just did a This American Life about it, that this whole idea that he'll just absolutely say that something either is true that's manifestly untrue or say something isn't true that's manifestly true. I think that Oprah is going to have to convene this kind of we are the world video where like all kinds of people, you know, Paul Ryan and, you know, Stephen Hawking or like everybody's going to sort of get uh, there on these sort of risers and sing some song basically about, <laughs> <laughs> about how empiricism actually works. And Oprah's the only person who can bring those people together. Yeah, I, I often ask myself, you know, in my dreams, what what could Oprah do to save us all? And you feel, but you feel it would be something, you know. And but that's the paradox: is that she she seems, frankly, like the most sane 
and compassionate person in America a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But the problem, of course, is that she's on TV in a weird way. And, and this sanity can only be worked out with an Oprah interview. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess now I'm, I'm going to get transcendental, but I think, uh, yes, how could we all be Oprah in our lives or have Oprahness in our lives? And is it possible to restore the ordinary dimension that doesn't constantly require display and, and fame? I mean, we've only got three minutes left according to that sign, two minutes left according to that sign of the window. So this is too big a question. But I mean, a lot of what you're talking about in some ways is a consequence of the breakdown of more, you know, rigid belief systems, right? I mean, for a long time, people understood what their life meant in terms of the church and the Bible. And I mean, all of this is, comes from the moment when, as Tom Stoppard's character says, suddenly the nose had it, you know, uh, once the nose went, the, but you have to have something new to replace that with. And maybe that's one of the things that secular culture hasn't done. Well, and that's what really interests me. Pe- people constantly ask, what about um, all the ways in, in which the things you describe seem religious? Mm. Uh, what about all the ways in which there was a village culture, an integral village culture where everyone knew their place? Is that what you want? Mm. And of course, I have to say no. I mean, I, I like dwelling at this moment. I, I believe in individualism and the rest. And what I take the book to be after is in a quest for real liberation, right? Mm. For actually being free to kind of do the things that we would do anyway. Why is it that so much of it seems to be taken up or taken away from us and sold back to us? Why do we have to pay for so many things that ought to be free? So that's that's the against everything. And to get the answer, you have to get this book. And all the answers will be there, all of them. Uh, It's Against Everything, Essays by Mark Greif. He's been so great to be with us here today. It really is a terrific book. I hope you – we haven't even touched on some of the other stuff, the stuff about Zuccotti Square. And anyway, you'll have to get the book to find out all about that. Meanwhile, if you did enjoy this conversation, nice people are going to talk to you right now. And it would be great if you would – if you're going to support public radio anyway, support it right now because we – Sort of get a little golden star in our book when you do that. So thanks to all the people who already did do that, by the way. And thanks to you, Mark. Gladys. Zach Efron's new food show on millennial culture featuring Salisbury steaks is a rerun. You're watching the microwave again, Gerald!